0: Welcome to the courage to lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week, I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews, I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares. And if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. Welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series. A gentleman called Melo Kalako, the author of Beating Burnout and Finding Balance. Melo is a mental health support coach, mindfulness and meditation expert across a range of different areas of our lives, in mental health facilities, at the highest echelons of business and sporting excellence, and even in the areas of the arts as well, with with performance that then entertain us all. I won't really spoil um, Milo's content in this interview because it just is so generous and so far reaching and so useful to all of us as leaders that I'll let him say most of it, but I'll just leave you with a couple of things. Milo said these couple of key things that I'll talk about in the introduction. He said, humans need to be growing, learning, developing and challenging ourselves. If we are doing the opposite, we are shrinking and dying and losing purpose and direction. Think about that. It's pretty insightful. Milo said another thing that comes from his his travels on a, on a, a push biking tour all over the world. He learnt this saying in Africa, it's called hibintu. And the theme of that hibinto phrase is, I exist because of the other people around me. I exist to serve others, and I empower others so they can do better in the world. Try doing something for someone else. And by doing that, they don't know that you've done it for them. See what happens when you do that. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did, because it is far reaching. And so useful to all of us. So, welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series. Our next guest, a, a wonderful man called Milo Kalako, um, who I really wanted to get to know. Um, he's written a beautiful book called Beating Burnout, Finding Balance Mindful Lessons for a M- Meaningful Life. So, welcome to the show, Milo.
1: Thank you. It's pronounced mellow, like mellow yellow.
0: Mellow yellow. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. well, I'll get that right from here on in. Oh, uh, That's all right,
1: because it is with, an L, with a single L, so a lot of people say that. I've so been okay. called Mer- Merlot, me like okay. a Well, so. well Mer-
0: Merlot wine's really good, so that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's not such a bad thing. Um, so I'm not going to uh, do a massive big introduction with you now. That, that We'll do that. Um, that'll, there'll be an intro to the interview if, to do that. So what every guest on the show gets asked is these two questions. So the first one is what was your first ever true experience of leadership and why? And it can be as a five-year-old or it can be yesterday.
1: Oh, I should have done my research on this one, (laughs) That I had a little look at this. Um, Let me think. The first thing that comes to mind is actually in terms of self-leadership, actually. So in terms of leading self. So I can think of a time where I was planning to cycle around the world on my mountain bike, and that's what you you probably know about the book that I've written, yeah. which some of those stories in there. So in the planning stages of that, there was actually five five or six of us that actually planned to cycle around the world on our mountain bikes, as you do. And we planned to circumnavigate the planet and go around you know, to different countries. And uh, I was training with these guys you know, we were going out for mountain bike rides and trying out our equipment and a whole range of things. And uh, one by one, unfortunately, as we started getting the maps out, we started looking at, you know, the remote parts of Africa and India, but one by one, they all started dropping out on me and saying, Mm. oh my God, it's too scary. I don't don't, don't want to do it. I'm not sure if I can handle this until it came down to just two of us, actually. And then two of us, we started getting specialized equipment, lightweight equipment so that we could actually get a two man tent and a whole range of things along the way. And then the two of us did some training runs to get fitter and stronger and push our boundaries a little bit. And then literally it was about three weeks before our departure date that that person also bailed on me. And I was left in a situation, you know, do I follow the others and say, no, I'm not going to do this, or do I actually do it alone and lead myself around the world and and, and travel around the world? So that was my very first sort of step on self-leadership in a way. And I'm so glad I did, to be honest, Alan, because – I went at my own pace I did what I wanted to do around the world and I got into all sorts of situations and I met lots of people all, all, along the way
0: so that um, I mean it's and I've read your book and, and there is that uh, flavor to it where you know you are on your own but when you're preparing to do something with them with a mate or I suppose a colleague yeah. um, and there's a lot of uh, oomph, a lot of uh, passion gone into that and three weeks out he says no I'm not going to do it where did you go in your own headspace? Yeah, what what made you turn it round? where you went, no, I'm going to do it?
1: You're just really putting that belief and trust in myself, to be honest. It was really like turning towards myself and saying, you know, this is a, a bit of a lifetime passion that I want to go immerse myself in all these cultures and turning inward towards myself and saying, you know, do I have what it takes? Do I have... You know the skills that I need, the fitness, the health, and all these sort of things. And it came down to trust, actually. You know, trust was the key word there. To really trust myself, you know, in all sorts sorts of situations and believe in myself. So trust and belief were the two things that led me there. And yeah, um, and like I said, I'm so glad that I did. And while I was while I was talking along that around leading self, I also thought of a story about leading others in a way. So I'll continue on here um, where, where when I was actually in Kenya in in africa i was staying in a campground and we found this place called um hell's gate national park hell's gate so great great name. (laughs) national park exactly so we went to explore it and believe it or not this national park actually you could actually cycle around so they actually had higher bikes that you could actually hire and rent from the main office and go around and this is a safari park with you know wild animals in there yeah so um, I couldn't believe it. So we did this. This is some friends that I met along the way, and we did this. There about eight or ten of us that, you know, jumped on these bikes. We hired these pretty much broken-down bikes and went for a ride through there. And me being probably the fittest rider or the strongest rider at the time, I, I became the default leader in know, mm. I like to lead this sort of little expedition. And we didn't know what we were doing, just sort of heading out there. And the very first sort of fork in the road that came on this thing was there was a, a steep uphill to the left, yeah, it was a flat, uh, sort of downhill ride to the right, and I looked to the right and I actually saw uh, cat tracks. so oh, yeah. yeah, whether it was a lion or cheetah yeah. or tiger, um, not tiger of course, um, or or leopard. Um, we didn't know, but my friend and I said, "Oh, let's go to the right. We're going to take this uphill battle, and it's quite a steep uphill." So we actually, so I led the group uphill, and we ended up going uphill. Two of the bikes broke down on yeah. that uphill ride. One yeah. one chain broke. Yeah. And crank whole pedal fell off so we sort of got the group up to the top of this hill took a bit of challenging sort of ride to get up there but once we actually did it opened out into this plains so this sort of plateau in a way and we saw in the distance some animals and we didn't know what they were at first and it turned out to be a buffalo like wild, wild buffalo and um so we're in a situation there on top of this plateau with broken yeah. down bikes and these wild yeah. and exactly like you see in the movies, this stampede sort of stuff. So they started to, to started to swirl around in this activity, very, very vigorous activity. And we could see there was like hundreds of them. It wasn't yeah. just 50 of them, there was like a hundred of them. They were getting yeah. closer and closer. And within seconds, they were like really close. And I led the group. I said, listen, guys, I think they, we should go to those trees. And there was a, a stand of trees just in the distance. Yeah. So we, we sort of shuffled to these trees and hid behind these trees and very luckily we did because they got so close to us and I'm sure if we didn't shelter behind those trees they would have crushed us to death like they were in this, these sweat patterns going round and round and round. So really scary and then then I look in the sky and I see, we all see these massive black clouds coming over like absolute pitch black and we were in a situation where we had to sort of leave to get back yeah. to our camp but we also had this you know herd of buffalo in between us so myself and this other guy said you know the next break that we get when they do this swirling pattern where they go in the other direction we'll make a mad dash go back down the hill and we did so we you know we waited for them to leave that we rode down the hill and somehow we managed <laughs> to actually tow the other two bikes the, the the two bikes that were broken we got some ropes and yeah. Yeah, myself and this other guy that was probably the strongest and fittest rider. We towed the other ones back. So this, you know, real sort of leadership sort of you know, came Team, in and,
0: and yeah. teamwork too.
1: Yeah. yeah, we literally got back to camp. We jumped into our campground and the skies opened up and that road that we just rode along, I kid you not, it turned into a river. Yeah. Like it was a torrent of, of water. And so, yeah, luckily we sheltered. So I can see there there's at least three big sort of you know, decisions that had to be made on the spot. You know, and someone had to take some leadership because none of us had experienced you know, you know riders except for myself and another person so yeah that's probably a good example i know it's not the corporate example i know it's not the you know the the business example but a, a real example of having to step up and lead the group to to safety
0: yeah no i think um the the real life examples are far more um meaningful than a business story like i heard one the other day um a five-year-old girl, when I asked her this question, another leader, a well-known leader, as a five-year-old, her seven-year-old brother was being bullied at school and she's in kindergarten and she goes up to the bullies and says, stop bullying my brother.
1: Yes, awesome. So,
0: you know, so that's, you know, that's, I, I really, I thank you for sharing something so like we can relate to that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So the second question is, um, what is something about Mello that no one knows?
1: Oh, wow. I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty open book, so most people know a lot about me. Um, probably one of my phobias or fears or, yep. you know, one of my pet hates, one of my pet peeves is I actually don't like ticks and leeches or any parasites, <laughs> anything that lives on you. I don't mind snakes and spiders. I don't mind all sorts of other animals. I mean, I'm not scared of any other things, but you know what, those ticks and things that live on you and they yeah. use as a host and i've had them i've had them all through africa and india
0: yeah. oh you would leeches especially
1: yeah leeches and my calves you know sucking my calf muscles i've had i've had uh yeah i don't want to go into too much detail one, one horrible one was actually sand lice i'm not sure if you've ever heard of sand lice but we're in a small village in africa and um i, I noticed when when i left that village i was walking with you know flip-flops you know so sort of sandals open sandals And I noticed that I've got all these little black spots underneath my feet, like little blackheads. Mm. And um, after about a week or so, those blackheads got bigger and bigger and bigger, like a pig actually. Mm. And and I popped them. And when you pop them, there was a little creature living inside. Oh, God. Yuck. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that's probably my my pet hate or my pet fear in life is anything that's a parasite that lives off of you and uses you as a host. (laughs) That's probably what people don't know about me.
0: Well, they're, they're the two kind of uh, icebreaker questions, I suppose you'd say, um, and you've been very honest about that. I, I, I don't yeah. want to experience sand lice. That sounds horrible. Um, yeah. So it's your interview, Mello. Um What, like, you're, you're this beautiful man that's written this uh, wonderful, wonderful book, and I've read it cover to cover, and it's really kind of just simple, um, basic stuff about how to look after yourself. Which we don't do, uh, and and I thank you for kind of making it such a an easy read and and something that's relevant to anyone. Like I can see relevance for myself and family and other people that I know. Um, so that's a, that's my plug for your book. Um, so, right. but um, and, and when I read your profile, say on LinkedIn, there's this man that's got you know all these wonderful skills. Like if I just go through some of them, like an author. Uh, a mindless high, a mindless mindfulness and high performance coach, a director, a mental health facilitator, a corporate health programs um, facilitator. So they're all serious skills. How does Mellow get created to end up on that journey? And you, you take us where you want to take us.
1: Yeah, it's probably about a three-decade journey to be honest. Like it sort of culminated That's over true. the years. I like how you nearly slipped up and said "mindless facilitator." <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm a bit of a mindless facilitator. I'm this sort of this mindless journey along the way. No, really, it's been a journey along the way where I've just listened to my heart and and followed my heart you know, throughout life in 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 some ways where I've listened to my calling. Um, so where to start with that? Three decades ago, so probably feeling a bit sort of lost and directionless in the work that I did. And I was always you know, self-exploring and uh, introspective. I've been practicing meditation and mindfulness for about 30 years, and I initially entered through martial arts. So I actually entered through uh, Shaolin Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. And through practicing these internal martial arts, I really learned quite quickly that the power of the mind was as important, if not more important, than the strength of the body. You know, both of them go to, together well, but okay. you can have all the strength in your body that you like, but if you don't have the strength in your mind, you know, you, you won't accomplish too much. So I started training the mind. I started to train my mind to get stronger you know, practice all sorts of different styles of meditation and the internal arts and you know, really immerse myself in there. I was actually, I couldn't get enough of it. Like I was, you know, seven days a week or even eight days a week, if there was eight days in a week, I was immersing myself in the spiritual practices, the, the Shaolin practices and, you know, really strengthening and sharpening my mind. And then I started working in more physical therapy space. So um, I don't want to call it personal training, but more rehab sort of training. Um, so I was I was working in in gyms. I was working in sort of exercise physiology spaces where I was helping people, you know, cope with pain management, chronic pain, or helping people with difficult situations in their life. And they were coming to me with physical problems, or they were they were presenting with physical problems. But what I often saw behind it was the mental problems that was you know, underlying there. Usually chronic pain usually leads to some sort of poor mental health
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and a whole range of things there. So that's where I then designed a program. So I designed some programs. So I was working in the physical therapy space and even doing some body work and massage type treatments and things like that along the way. And then I designed a program for mental health and approached some psychiatric clinics. So I started working in psychiatric clinics and I, it was a well a well-being program which had aspects of exercise mindfulness nutrition you know, meditation and a whole range of things in there and before I knew it it became their most popular course on their profile and I was booked out in you know three or four psychiatric clinics and I had a wait list for my programs you know, that were you know very popular and it's fair to say that I cut my teeth in those clinics it's fair to say that I you know I worked in psychiatric clinics and I I learned the good, the bad, the ugly about you know mental health, you know on both sides of the fence, from the you know, psychiatrists and psychologists to the to the patients, and anything from you know, deep psychosis to deep depression to anxiety to bipolar disorder to a whole range of different you know mental health problems. So I spent about twenty years doing that, eighteen or twenty years doing that, and I still do some of that work because I still am passionate about helping people with mental health problems
0: you want to, um, and I, I don't like to interu- in, interrupt, but um, yeah. it's a big chunk of your life. Boy, what you just said, you, you spent 20 years doing that. Um, it became a, a very booked out program with a wait list um, and you, you've kind of went into, you saw the good and the bad of mental yeah. health. Um, so do you want to give us, uh, let's let's explore that. Give us a, the a, the good of the mental health yes. and and the bad of the mental health and what and what did both those experiences do to you what did you learn from them yeah
1: yes yeah. so it's good it's a good question the good the bad the ugly of of mental health and it is you well know, that I am you know, very passionate about helping as many people as possible and um, sometimes it crushes me the system itself so what i see with a lot of the patients that i was working with and i was working with both inpatients and outpatients so to clarify, inpatients are in the clinic. You know they're admitted in the clinic, and they are you know pretty highly medicated usually. You know sort of going through a difficult time, and they um, you know, need some support in the clinic. There's also outpatients that have left the clinic, so they've left the the hospital, and they you know they're independent and working, and they and try to come back and get some support. So I was working with both of those programs. So some pretty um, severe cases, especially with the inpatients. And what I'd see is a lot of progress sometimes with the work that I'm doing. I'd see like five steps forward, and then I'd see three steps back, you know, or two steps forward, and and, and five steps back. And sometimes it was, um, you know, self-led by the patients themselves. Sometimes it was um, the system itself, the hierarchy in the in the hospital system, and sometimes the flaws in the hospital system and the clinical system. And yeah, there's a whole range of things in between that, and that used to frustrate me actually. Yeah. yeah it's so much progress and then something would happen, it might be, I don't know, a change of medication or a change of environment or a change of circumstance and we sort of lose that traction there. So, and in one room, for example, I would have to hold the space, you know, I'd be conducting a session in one room, let's say a group of outpatients came into one room and they'd be in one group, in one room, there will be an anxiety patient, high anxiety patient that wants to get going you know they want to keep moving and you know keep going you have deep depression where they're almost falling asleep in, in the room yeah you know, they, they're unmotivated and and everything in between so i had to learn to hold that space of you know satisfying the high anxiety person also the deep depression person and and everyone in between and make sure that everybody you know got a voice and was heard there so um that took a a fair bit of craftsmanship to actually hold that space and and to um, to give them the freedom to speak up, to give them a, a place to you know feel safe to speak up. And sometimes I'd, I'd walk out of the room and think, I wonder if that landed. I wonder if actually they got that message across. And I think, I don't even know if they're even listening to me sometimes, but I'd, I'd get emails afterwards or, or messages afterwards saying, Milo, that was amazing what you just did there. I really appreciated it. So I love the the breakthroughs that I'd get. So the good was the breakthroughs that I'd get from sometimes very simple practices. Yeah, Really super simple. Like what you mentioned about the book. What I've tried to do with the book is to simplify the complex. Mm. All of my years of learning, three decades of learning and make it applicable and accessible. Mm. So we can actually walk out of that room or finish reading that book and uh, they've got something to implement immediately. Mm. So that's that's my idea. So everyone would walk out of that room and they'd have one thing to do or one task to do. And sometimes with mental health, that was more than enough, you one task to do. Yep. So that's the good. The the bad, um, I'm not sure if I should be disclosing this too much, but um, uh, it's kind of a funny system working in, in the hospital systems and the medical hierarchy is quite an interesting beast in many ways. Um, but I used to get referred many... Many patients and many clients through, you know, particular doctors and particular psychiatrists in the in the clinics. Yeah. And because I was a contractor, sort of an external contractor coming in, it was kind of an interesting scenario where they would hardly talk to me or hardly acknowledge me when I'd walk past them across the, you know, the corridors because I was this contractor coming in. I yeah. wasn't a qualified psychiatrist or anything like that. So it was kind of an interesting beast to working that environment where you were sort of the low level yeah, yeah. Person in there and you know, the head psych you know, was referring me or the clients, but they sort of didn't acknowledge me. And sometimes the um, the um, hierarchical system would change. So they might yeah. get a new general manager coming in, or they might even get a new CEO coming in to the hospital and it would just shake up the whole place and they'd get rid of programs, they'd you know, move things around. So that was quite frustrating, I have to say. Yeah. You know, Getting caught in that system there was a bit bit frustrating. Where you know you're doing great work with patients, and then suddenly someone comes in and just just scraps it all overnight. And there was one incident where actually um, I was told to leave a particular clinic um, because the the system you know, didn't allow this program anymore. But they also told the patients that I left by my choice.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I didn't like that. So that's that's a bit of the ugly there. Um, But I know it's a difficult system to work in and and there are some amazing, don't get me wrong, there are some amazing psychologists and psychiatrists that I work alongside and I really respect their work. But unfortunately there's a lot that sort of get caught in the system and and don't like what they do anymore and it sort of turns into a bit of bitterness and, um, yeah, not a great environment. So that's where I started turning the corner and I thought, well, I don't want to work. This was about 80% of the work that I was doing at the time. So it was, you know, 80% 80% mental health and then 20% other, other yep. work I was doing. So then I, I thought I need to back off some of this mental health work and start at least I almost started questioning what was normal. You know, when you're working yep. in an environment, you start questioning what is the real world, what is normal? And and you know, I'm not sure if you can define that in, in a yep. word. But then I started to start, decide to turn more towards some of the corporate work that I was doing. And the corporate work was working with you know, high achievers, you know, leaders, general managers, um, CEOs, and a lot of that you know, middle management sort of work there. So that's, so that's where I started turning the corner and started, I want to work on both spectrums. I want to try to help people in the corporate space to help them prevent actually even ending up in a psychiatric Yeah, yeah. to start with. And that's where that sort of balance came up out there. And then I started doing that 50-50, so 50% corporate work, 50% mental health work, and now I'm probably at about uh, 75, 25, 75 corporate and leadership work and high performance work and 25% of mental health work. So hopefully that's answered that to some extent there.
0: Yeah, no, it, uh, it has and it's kind of, this is where it becomes interesting. So nearly everyone that comes on the show has that moment, I suppose, mm. where they they're doing something, a task, a job, a career, that it's not hitting the mark, or it's—how um, did you say it? Uh, you you had, had a word for it. Um, it wasn't not what you know. But you asked yourself, what's normal? And other people say, well, you know, um, it's—I just don't like who I am doing this role. Yes. Um, so, do you want to go there a little bit? You know, because you're quite—you—it's quite interesting straight away. you you're you're really in touch with you. And what in your and your and and your thought processes from all the uh, thirty years of um, meditation, you know, you write in you write in that space. So what was going on in your head? What was what was mellow like then when when you were eighty percent mental health and and doing a great service? But what was that doing to you?
1: Yeah, I learned I learnt quite quickly. It was quite interesting working in mental health wards where I'd see the. You know, the new psychologists come onto the ward, and they you know, they're just fresh out of you know, school, and they're coming in and doing their placements, and they they're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and all you know, really going to come in there and change the world. And I see them come in, and I see them within about eighteen months to two years, a very different person. Yeah, yeah, you know, so you know, from that. And usually they come in, they're wearing bright clothing, they're looking fit and healthy and bubbly. Yeah. And within about two years, if they don't look after themselves and they don't do their self-care, you know, they start even limping into the room or you know, carrying more weight or looking a bit jaded themselves. So when I started to look around the room or started to look around the clinic, I thought, you know, the old saying, if you hang around with ducks long enough, you start waddling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I didn't want to be that person. So I wanted to make sure that I guarded myself from that. And I think what happened to me was I'm so, I was so, oh, I am, I am so passionate about helping people from the bottom of my heart. Like, I really want to help these people, every single individual that that came into my space. Um, And I did see suicide along the way. I saw all sorts of, you know, um, horrible situations. But I wanted to help every single person. So in some way, I may have opened myself up too much and, you know, given my passion and purpose and drive too much. I learned along the way, actually mechanisms and through my own self practices and through my own meditations and rituals that I do I learned actually how to get an energy exchange yeah so some people de- definitely what I see in the clinical space is many clinicians you know whether they are psychotherapists psychologists psychiatrists they have a bit of a guard up you know a bit of a boundary that they yeah. don't yeah. Quite get people in and that's great. I think it's a, a, a really good thing to have to have those boundaries, I think. Maybe I didn't have enough boundaries at that time that I wasn't, um, you know, keeping myself safe and I was, you know, letting a lot of that energy into me. But I didn't want to put up those boundaries where I wasn't personable either. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to still be that person that people, you know, know, like, and trust. So what I found was my best mechanism and my best way to cope with with that was actually – to have some rituals myself that I was actually getting energised off of the patients, off of the people, and it would actually feed me and energise me. But I also needed some sort of cleansing rituals that I did myself. So let's say, for example, I was finishing a three-hour, you know, mental health um, inpatient programme. I'd come out and my next client might be a corporate client in a, in, a, in an office, let's say. Yep. I'd come out and I'd do a bit of a process, you know, a bit of a cleansing process, actually a physical one where I almost like, you know, wash off a bit of that energy Recharge my energy reset my intention again and go see my next 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 uh, client there So I ha- so I had to learn mechanisms myself to actually to cope with that and then I, again Like I said, I asked myself the question do I want to do just this work or do I want to do more preventative work? Yeah. To, to prevent them even landing in the hospital to start with uh, Or landing in the clinic to start with and that's where that turning point came so I, I learned had to cope with it, but also needed to separate myself from what I see with the very good psychologists that I work with and the good um, psychiatrists, not many of them do five-day work weeks. You know, many of them would do like three, three or three and a half days. And then those other days are you know, self-care and, and those other things. So I, I needed to do the same. I needed to back off some of the mental health work and do, let's say, two days mental health and three days of the, the other work that I did.
0: Okay. That's interesting. So you found you found the crossroads, and and, and in what you're telling us, it was um, pretty well your own ideas. Did did you did anyone help you, uh, like at a mentor level, a coach level, or you're just yeah because of all the uh, the meditation um, practices you've done, you you actually found the way yourself.
1: Yeah, I think it's quite unique in a way. The, the way that I found that, and it's not—it's not the stereotypical clinical route. You know that they have—you know—they do—they do a lot of debriefing afterwards. They talk about things that, that I didn't want to be that guarded person. You know, I, I know a lot of psychologists that I that I know personally also, and I'm not bagging psychologists. on yeah. like, they're great. Please don't get that message there. But a lot of them—they have this guard up, and, and it's even hard to be personable with them as a friend. Yeah. It's even harder, and I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be that. I want to be genuine. I want to be authentic. I want to be vulnerable. Many of the patients that I work with, they know some of my personal life. They know I have children. They know know, what I love doing on weekends and all those sort of things. So I didn't ever want to stop that. I didn't ever want to lose that aspect of it, and I think that's what made me build likability and trustability with my patients so well that we'd get really good results.
0: Yeah, and I think – yeah.
1: That. I like
0: I like what you um because it's obvious I mean reading your book it's obvious you're a nice guy and then I know I follow you on LinkedIn and I think maybe um Facebook as well but you know there's what you just said what you know your personal life you're pretty open with that you share that you you've got this beautiful big fluffy massive big sheep uh, dog uh,
1: a Swiss shepherd Coda
0: yeah yeah um but I like where you went uh, with um you kind of give them little hints along the way you like mechanisms to look after yourself even if you've got a busy day like I like that uh, cleansing of yourself even and and this is a uh, an audio um, podcast but just for the listeners when Milo was describing I come out of the the mental health clinic environment and then I was going to a corporate client uh, M- Melo actually and then I cleansed myself he actually Washed his arms like you would in a shower, but you know, just in a in a physical sense. So, exactly. and that and that probably tricks your brain into thinking oh, I'm cleansing myself. So, and then yes, I, I really like what you said next. Uh, like you, I could end the interview now um, <laughs> with um, with uh, just what you how to take self care when you're giving yourself so much is what I picked up. Like um, yeah. the good ones, and you do it obviously do it as well. You make your week a three-day week, you know, three and a half-day week, and then for for giving yourself yes. uh, to others, and then the rest of the week is about self-care.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you cannot do you cannot serve at your best if you're not balancing that out. There are I have my non-negotiable habits that are just for me, and they're non-negotiable. Like they are simple let's, things. Like let's tell
0: us, tell us. Yeah, tell us.
1: Yeah, exercise, walk the dog, um, meditation, you know eating as best I can, all those things. So then I can be a better person for my family. I can be a better person for my clients. I can be, I can serve better. I can run seminars before any seminar, before any workshop, before any meeting that I have, I stop, I pause, I do a little practice. It might be two minutes, it might be three minutes to reground myself, to reconnect myself. And these little mini you know, self, self-reflective or introspective practices is what gets me through every single day so I can be the best with my people
0: that I'm with. But let me. Your um your book's really good because I it's in in writing and it's so short. But you you just nailed nailed about six or seven, maybe even ten practices in quick succession there that. Yeah. That I think that I think are chart breakers myself. So you cannot be your best self. Is that you right? Yeah. You, you, be, be you cannot be.
1: You cannot operate at your best if you're not looking after yourself.
0: And then you then the. Your non-negotiables were exercise, walk the dog, being with family, eating properly. Yes. yes. And was there anything else to that?
1: Any, anything that nourishes me. Anything that. So what happens in a lot in life when we get stressed, when we get busy, when we get you know, overwhelmed, we let go of the things that we need the most. Usually, you know, the things that actually fill up our cup. So meditation is not negotiable. I've not missed a day for about thirty years, and I think that's like ten thousand days in a row. Walking. With my family walking with my dog walking with my wife not negotiable i, I try to do that early in the morning and I, and I try to bookend my day so i end my day start my day with a walk to get the serotonin levels up to get the arousal going get the sunlight into me and close my day with a walk and then i say to myself at the end of my walk i'm not going to work after that so to create boundaries there you know that's sort of that very clear closing of the day so walking exercise nutrition, the basics, really, you know, trying to sleep well as best as possible, sleep hygiene, those basic fundamentals that are, um, that just should be there.
0: And then you said, um, and I liked where you just went straight into it, because you do these seminars and sessions where you you honestly help people, you you uh, help them with their preventative self-care. Yes. Um, and you said, uh, before you go in, you do a little two minutes thing. So what what's that look like?
1: What is that? Yeah, two or three minutes of just stopping. So obviously I have my presentation prepared in advance. It's already there. So I know, I know the content well. I know what I'm going to present. And I know that I'm going to be in front of, let's say, you know, anything from 50 people to even sometimes 600 people to even sometimes 800 people. So I want to make sure that I am fully present for those people. So what I do in that two-minute practice is I just stop, I pause, I close my eyes, I follow my breath, I anchor myself with my breath into my body so I become more present in my body, get out of my head so that I'm not in my head thinking about the presentation and get into my body. So that way there when I actually come back out of that practice and I open that seminar, workshop or that coaching session or, or whatever it is I'm going to do, I am there fully showing up fully showing up for that for that group or for that person or whatever it is so that stopping and pausing is so powerful just to get you out of that you know overthinking or overstimulated mind especially let's say for example i've just come from a coaching a ceo you know i've just come from finishing coaching a ceo for an hour or so and there's a lot of you know energy exchange there a lot of advice getting along there and then let's say half an hour later i've got a a seminar workshop on how to stay focused or multitasking or whatever it is, or or self care or mindfulness. I don't wanna take that energy from that last session into the next session. So I wanna make sure that I stop, I pause, I bookend that one, and then I am fully present for the next one. Likewise, if I'm working in mental health, if I'm working with a a schizophrenic client, and then my next client is an athlete, I don't wanna take that energy from the schizophrenic client into the next session. I wanna separate those reconnect with myself reconnect with me first and then let my wisdom come out it's not just words and data that i've got on a powerpoint presentation it's letting my my belief trust wisdom come out of me by stopping and pausing unfortunately most people don't give themselves permission to stop these days they just keep mm. going, meeting mm. meeting meeting and yeah. they're exhausted at the end of the day
0: yeah no, they're really good tips Mello. they're, they're perfect so so with where you've we've taken us, you're kind of 75% um, what you want to do, preventative, and 25% mental health um, uh, clinics because you still have a passion for that. Um, so where are we now? Like we're 20. You said you're 20 years in um, uh, in that space. Where do where where do you want to take us now? How do how do we end up with what's the processes that we end up with Melo, who we're talking to today?
1: Yeah, I just want to make sure that I'm continually enjoying what I do you know, and continually growing, learning, and developing myself. You know, what I do know about human beings, including myself, if we're not growing, learning, developing, and challenging ourselves, we're doing the opposite. You know, We're sort of shrinking and dying and you know, losing purpose and direction. So as long as my work continues to evolve and to stimulate me and challenge me and help me grow and develop as a person, I'll continue doing exactly what I'm doing. I can't. I never, never would have thought I was going to work in a psychiatric clinic. Never mm. in in my cards to think of that. But when I started doing that, you know, physical therapies type work, I very quickly learned that mental health, you know, the mind body connection fascinates me to no end. And sometimes it blows me away when I teach somebody a particular technique, and it might be a physical technique. I, I also teach what's called qigong and tai chi practices. So qigong being a very ancient Chinese. Um, practice where
0: it's heard of it it's like yeah yeah
1: yeah. be together and sometimes it absolutely blows me away when I teach a client of mine a Qigong movement and it's actually measurable in in the in the medical clinical world yeah, for example, I, I had a I had a client that I was working with. Um, I won't mention her name. She's actually a famous singer, actually um, a famous person in the circles there. And she came to me with high anxiety, very high anxiety, and you wouldn't believe it when you see her, you know, on stage and things like that. And um, all of her observations, all of her um, um, measurements in her, you know, her blood pressure, uh, liver readings, all sorts of things were just totally out of whack. And she was seeing neurologists. She was seeing endocrinologist, she was seeing all these specialists to try to sort of correct her. And I actually taught her this particular few movements and and some meditation practices to go with that. She was a very good student. She was very diligent with her practices. And um, within about four weeks, everything just stabilised. Her body went into homeostasis, excuse me, so so balance even – even her readings, all of her, you know, observations, all stabilised. Her blood pressure stabilised. Her resting heart rate stabilised. Sometimes it blows me away that a simple practice like breath work and movement can have such a profound shift. And I'm f- absolutely fascinated by that. I love the two hard basket clients, mm. clients that nobody knows what to do with. Um, and sometimes I get referrals from professors or you know other doctors, and and I just love just. Bringing out whatever I've learned over the, you know, three decades of my, you know, journey of, you know, Eastern and Western medicine, and put it together and and help people. I'll I see think. what
0: happens. Yeah, <coughs> yeah. I, I think. Um, can you just describe? I'm, I'm pretty sure in that part of the conversation that you dropped out. Um, so do you want to just describe what? Sh- sh- maybe not spell mm-hmm. how how to say qigong, how to spell it, and what is it?
1: Okay. So Qigong is a very ancient practice over two thousand years old. A lot of people know Tai Chi as you know moving moving meditation type practice. Qigong is almost like described as the root of the of Tai Chi. so very simple movements in coordination with your breath. So you do you do some very simple movements and you'll follow your breath. Usually it involves diaphragmatic breathing, so yeah, breathing for your diaphragm, which has so many therapeutic benefits alone. And many movements are designed for different uh, functions and different conditions. So there are actually movements to help with depression. There are movements to help with anxiety. There are movements. And because I know sort of both the Western and clinical, I grab a bit of the Eastern philosophies and the Western philosophies and I put them together. And I, and I make my own version for that particular unique client. And it honestly, sometimes it's like, wow, that worked. That, that just like worked. It's just a very simple practice. And if they do the practices, it works. And I get sometimes months later or years later, clients coming up to me and saying, hey, Melo, you know that technique that you taught me, you know, in that lunch and learn, or that technique that you, you know, taught me years ago, it actually helped me through my marriage or it helped me deal with cancer or it helped me deal with things because there are so many deep rooted, profound benefits from such simple practices. Right. Well, I've learned over the years not to use the language so much of, you know, sometimes let's say I'm walking into a corporate seminar. I'm not going to talk about meridians and chakras and all that sort of stuff because they, you know, I'll lose them. But if I yes. say, you know, let's go refocus or let's go, you know, you know, improve our performance or let's do this technique, which is going to help us to have clarity, then I can actually get it across the line. So I sort of blend what I think is going to be the best, best of the East, the best of the West, and put it together a bit like that yin yang symbol, yeah, yep. perfect balance and harmony.
0: Wow, what an answer! Um, yep. There's so many places I can go with that, but I, I, let's let's keep moving forward because that's um, I love. Well, I'll
1: uh, mention I'll, I'll mention something, Alan. Actually, along that line there, and I, and I talk about it in the book. It's probably a, a good way to summarise it. I talked about um, a particular client that I was working with um, who had throat cancer. And um, quite an aggressive throat cancer. And, and all of his prognosis was very negative. You know, the the, the oncologist said, you know, you're going to be struggling with this. You, you're going to hate yourself. You're going to, you know, you're going to be on um, so, uh, no solid foods after the first week. So they're basically painting the, the doomsday message for this mm. poor guy. And I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to give this guy light and hope, and you know, and focus on his strength. And this guy is a very strong, successful man. runs multiple um, businesses. You know, millionaire sort of guy there. So he's got all the right things in place. And um, I, I met him every single day for 49 days of his treatment. So I went to his house, met him every single day, and we went through whatever was present on the day. So whether, you know, some days he was nauseous from the chemotherapy, so we did some you know, gentle meditation. Some days he was feeling stronger, so we'd get up and do some Qigong practice or some movement or even go for a walk and get, get outside and get some fresh air. But we met every day as it came for those 49 days. I kid you not, this guy worked all the way through. He actually worked. He went to work every single day in some capacity, even when he wasn't you know, feeling well, he managed to shock because he likes his work and loves his his people. He ate all the way through, solid foods. He ate solid foods all the way through. He didn't lose any hair. And then they were saying he's gonna lose hair. He had some scars, scars around his neck and things from, mm. the, from the radiotherapy. Yep. But his oncologist actually rang up and said, in my 45 years of oncology, I've never seen anybody come out like this, anybody, with such a strong mind, strong body, and strong will and this guy had a strong will anyway but i just enhanced that so all i did for him was met him every day where he was and gave him some tools and techniques to strengthen his body and mind and he came through that 49 days of treatment almost unscathed quite amazing
0: so how does um i mean i find this quite interesting as well like uh a lot of the a lot of people listening to this has probably never heard of Melo before. Um, oh, yeah. uh, uh, but this guy, obviously a, a high powered businessman, had at least been referred to you or or knew you. How does someone such as this successful businessman, who's facing probably the biggest challenge of his life, let you into his home 49 days in a row? Like that's that's a huge yeah. contract, huge big that's a leap, big leap of trust, big yeah. commitment on big commitment on your part. Is it going to work, I suppose? You know, talk us through that. how does how does that happen?
1: Yes, yeah, this guy I actually met previously in some of the physical therapies work that I'd done. So it'd been a fair while since I'd seen him. And then the moment I found out that he had cancer through somebody else, I just I just reached out to him. I said, if you need any support, I'm here for you. No problem. And he remembered me. Obviously, we had kept up you know, communications. I'd taught him some meditation techniques. He'd, all, he'd already been practicing some transcendental meditation himself. And yeah, he said, yes, bring it on. Let's do it. And very quickly after the first few sessions, he said, Mel, I want to see you every day. I want to make sure you're here every day. So we sort of... Definitely let me into his world, and definitely, literally in his bedroom, in his room, you know, and yeah, you know, on his off days and on his not so great days. But that's how we met it day by day. So when it comes to this, what I, what my focus was, was not to look forward too much, you know, to look forward with some hope and vitality and you know, integrity. Um, um, by, uh, energy, yep. but not the sort of like get caught up in the doomsday sort of message that was coming forward. The only time that exists, actually, he's the guy that actually repointed out to me in the book, The Power of Now. You might've heard of the book, The Power of Now, yep. and in that he actually pointed out, I think it's page 85, he specified, which talks about the future being a mental phantom and it doesn't even exist. The only time that exists and the only time that you can cope with is the now. So that's what we actually did. We actually worked with the now. So we just kept working through that. I know I've gone on a tangent here from the original question, but
0: no, I love it. Go, go where you want to (laughs) go.
1: Yeah, It just makes me realize sometimes that's all we need to do, you know, be present with what is and not get caught up in all the what ifs. You know, What if this happens? What if I can't work anymore? What if I lose my business? What if, what if, what if, what if that's, that doesn't even exist. But the only time that exists is the now and you can always cope with the now. Yeah, and this, yeah. guy was, this guy was a real matter-of-fact bloke, like a really strong sort of bloke. I, I love him, he's a you know, very tough guy, you know, very honest, very integral. And so we met each day as it was, and yeah, he totally let let me into his world. And that's what I find with my clients, patients, whatever you wanna call them, if they're patients, they're in a hospital, but if they, I, I don't usually like to use the word patients because it in, in, infers that they're sick. Yeah, yeah. Clients, they, they become friends of mine because we both lead each other into each other's worlds, and that's a
0: big, big, a big responsibility, isn't it? Really? So yeah, yeah, yeah. and a big. Um, oh, I think the it would be. Hard, and uh, this is let's let's go here a little bit then, because yeah. it's because um, it's it's a huge leap of trust when someone invites you into their world or into their organisation to do what you do, yes. um, and you, and the and just by talking to you. It's obvious that you have a commitment to that, even what you said, you know two minutes before I walk onto the stage or walk into the room, I, I ground myself, I connect with my body, and I want to make sure that I deliver what I'm here to deliver. so that that means everything to you. Um, so how do you um, How do you cope with that? I don't know whether that is. Does the does that level of trust and responsibility burden you? Like to me, you're probably you gave us the story about when your life was 80% yeah. mental health clinics, and that was getting to you. Yeah. But but it must I, I I there would have to be some level of protection you give yourself so that that level of trust and responsibility and outcome i suppose it doesn't burden you how, how do you look after yourself even say the 49 days with that man that's a that's a big deal like he's that's essentially been told he's going to die
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, how do you deal with it
1: i think it's the opposite of what you said actually it it doesn't burden me it actually empowers me it, i feel that it's a privilege to be let into that space into that world it's a privilege to actually work with someone on that level and to be honest that's the level that I want to work with people. I don't really want to work with someone superficially that's not quite giving me everything or all things. Sometimes it might take 10 coaching sessions to get to the juicy part, like the good stuff, because they finally sort of you know come come through and open that. That's the level that I want to meet people at. I feel, and so, so it does the opposite to me. It actually energises me. When, I, when I'm working with someone on that level, and I, I like to get to know someone when I'm working with someone, especially one-on-one coaching, the stuff that they wouldn't talk about to their wife or their partner, or yeah, you know, the stuff that they wouldn't actually share with others. And if I can create the space where they feel open and honest to to share that, then I'm in the right place.
0: Yeah,
1: and that energizes me. That it's a privilege to touch someone on that level, to reach someone on that level, and to support someone on that level.
0: It's interesting. I think maybe before we started this interview, you said. Um, so who does the courage to lead interview series, um, you know, what's the audience, what's, what's the message. And the message is, uh, I want to interview leaders who empower, shine a light on leaders who empower others to create a supportive and inclusive workplace environment or community, or, or probably an environment for themselves. So yes. you, you just nailed it. So it's a, it's a, what you do empowers you uh, and people and you you're all about energy so if the leader's got a positive energy that rubs off on people yeah. um and yeah. i love where you went with that like leadership is a privilege it's what, a privilege yeah, yeah what what you do in the rooms you're put into and even the book that you've written it's a it's a privilege to share your message so okay we're i think we're starting to get a get a bit of a handle on um where yeah. where, where what you why you do what you do and and, and how special it is so what's What's next? How does, how does, um, how do we end up with you? Like we're, we're, we're in the, we're in the room with the foot, you know, we're in the room with a guy for 49 days with throat cancer and he comes out the other side, you have his, uh, ca- cancer doctors tell you, um, that he's never seen that outcome before. So how do like that? That's a while ago in the part in the history, in the past, how do we end up with you? What, what, uh, what happens next?
1: Yeah, so a range of things. So the work that I do, it's it's so varied, to be honest. So I work with anything from elite athletes, you know, trying to improve their performance, including Olympic athletes. I work with CEOs, general managers, directors of companies. I work with the everyday person, um, entrepreneurs. So I actually love the variety that I work with, and I don't think I'll ever change that now. I think I've got to a healthy variety and a healthy mix and i learn something off every single one of my people that i work with you know so again that privilege there of working with people some people get referred to me by a doctor and some people get referred to me by a psychologist or people in my network i've quite a broad network of different you
0: people you do you do yeah yeah
1: the yeah. names
0: you mentioned in your book were huge <laughs> so the variety yeah, yeah. yeah
1: exactly some of the you know people that are, the companies that i work with also also varied anything from the big four banks to the you know many other different financial institutions to you know retail companies a whole range of different companies so for me it's about empowering as many people as possible and giving them some tools and techniques so they can be a better person or a better a, a better partner a better wife a better husband a better father better whatever it is and then i feel i'm doing my work yeah, you know, I think I say in the very first part of my book, the um, the opening that, and this might sound cliche, and I know it's probably something that you hear often. I want to leave the world a better place than I found it. Yeah, and yeah, that's a. I know it, you can just blow that off as just a statement. No, no,
0: no, no, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think yeah, it, people at your level, uh, anyone that comes on this show, talk about that. Like, um, and I might go into names, but probably the best analogy I saw of that is the All Blacks. so so when they when they are given the privilege to wear the all black jersey when they hand it back again that jersey's got to be in a better state better state than what when they walked in so i think it's um that's what leaders do so it's it's nice that you start your book with that
1: yeah and that's and i truly live by that passion that mission it's a true passion it's not just something i write at the beginning of the book and it's 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 real. It's deep down, and that's what I want to do. So my children can have a better place to live in. So the other people around. It's about other people, to be honest. Though. There's a word in in, uh, in that was actually really funny. As I was doing a podcast recently, and I just got reminded of this. And I was interviewed by um, someone from Zimbabwe, and he mentioned a few African words that I hadn't heard from a while. Mazungu being one of them. Mazungu means white person, and you know I'm a Mazungu I'm in Africa. Yeah. But, but he also re-mentioned the word Hibuntu. Ubuntu basically means I am because of somebody else. I exist because of the other people around me. So, and that's where you know that's leadership in a way. Like I am my people. I am, I'm I'm here on this podcast with you because you exist. I wouldn't mm. be there otherwise. Yeah. I'm, I'm in front of a room of twenty or thirty people because they exist. I wouldn't be there otherwise. So it's not about me. It's about the other person. And this this notion of Ubuntu is a great way to to live your life because it's about serving others and also, you know, making the world a better place in in some way. And that word service is also leadership. You know, yeah. Word, it's, yeah, it is to lead, um, to empower your people, to give people simple tools and techniques that they can live a more meaningful life, or just enjoy life more, or find balance, or whatever it is.
0: You're very. Um, I can see why you and Robert Anderson are mates because uh, <laughs> his, his platform, his platform of his life is essentially that service to other people and preferably if they don't even know he's there is what is what yeah, what, right.
1: yeah. To, to, to do something for the act of just doing it not yeah. to not to get yeah. recognition for it to leave a gift for someone they don't know it comes from you
0: yeah it's lovely um i wish uh every time i interview someone like yourself um i wish it was a video because the passion the joy the animation that you're sharing but people will get that from your voice and your yeah. tone but um it's clear why what you do is successful. So, so we're in we're in this uh, in this space now where y- you empower other people at all different levels. Um, how do, are we nearly at the book now, or is is, yeah. is, there, is, yeah. there, any, is there anything in is there any like you've been? Um, it's quite interesting because you're quite open in the book about your experience, about your round the world trip on your push bike and all that kind of stuff. But I can't really remember, remember from the rest of the book, and even talking to you now, like all life has all life has challenges. So, can you give a personal example? Um, and you don't have to, but can yeah. you give a per- personal example in the last three decades where things were going down the wrong track, and and you turned it round, like? even in even in his jump from the clinics to the to the corporate world um to the book like yeah did it go did it go wrong anywhere and how did you pull it back
1: yeah yeah it always goes wrong like there's so many there's so many things that don't turn out to plan you know, there was a situation where um I met, my, I met my wife in Africa while I was traveling, actually on, on the back of an orange truck, as you do, uh, and she's Swiss, and um, Keela's beautiful, beautiful girl, and we have two beautiful children, and there was a point in our life where we sort of finished our travels, we traveled together for some years and went up to the Himalaya together and trekked together, got sick together, whole range of things there along the way, and then um, we decided to go, we're living in Geneva, living in Switzerland, then we're a little bit bored by the Sort of sterile life of geneva it's a beautiful country don't get me wrong it's absolutely lovely but there wasn't much happening especially from our adventures that we just had Mm. so we planned to go move to china and live in china i was fascinated by the chinese culture obviously from the chinese martial arts that i practice she was actually interested in traditional chinese medicine Mm. and we'll go live in china so we did we packed up everything we had in 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 geneva we packed our bags and we, we left and I actually broke my arm like three days before I left. Mm. I didn't know because I, I had a skiing accident up in the mountains and I, um, I had an impact fracture on my on my top of my shoulder. The X-ray was misread. And the guy said to me, no problem, you should be fine. So I actually ended up going traveling to China to go live in China with a broken arm. That's another story on its own because I had to endure the pain and all that along the way and went and visited all sorts of crazy doctors along the way. But to cut this story a bit short was we actually set ourselves up in in China, in Guilin, in the south of China. We set ourselves up in a beautiful little apartment um, and we – Got a, got jobs in a university, so teaching English was a starting point. I found a fantastic um, martial arts master. She found a fantastic Chinese medicine clinic to um, to start working at and observing. So we thought this is great, this is fantastic, exactly what we want. I wanted to learn Mandarin, and also Keila wanted to learn Mandarin. So we're all set up, and then dun dun, we had COVID here, but this was SARS.
0: Oh no, okay, Star. yeah. yeah
1: out so that was must have been 2002 i think it was 2001 2002 and sars broke out and basically they said everybody must leave and all airports were closing every single airport was closing there was only like one open in brussels and one open in beijing so we we got told by the university all foreigners have to leave so that just put a massive dampener um you know massive change you know to our focus of where do we go now what do we do and um so that's where we had to make decisions what do we do next so we, we flew back to geneva because or brussels and then into geneva because that was the only place that would sort of let us in and we thought let's not you know stay here let's let's look about going where else and obviously that's where we made the decision to come to australia and to move back to australia for better or for worse we're still here and uh, you know we still have a uh, we still we love australia we love where we live but we still have a and inclined to go live elsewhere but that was a definite challenging situation that just changed all of our hopes and dreams and desires all overnight
0: yeah
1: yeah and actually our bags were quarantined in um, in kowloon in, in hong kong so we didn't even have any clothes or anything to wear we had nothing we'd packed up our life and moved over there our apartment just got you know we had to pay for the next few months just got you know shelved and we basically were clothesless almost and had to leave there and start a whole new life together and and then we did, and then we moved here um, to Australia, to Melbourne. I'm not from Melbourne originally, but we moved to Melbourne and, and opened up opportunities here, and, yeah, you know, just following now, how many years have we been here? 12 or 13 years, I think it is, hmm. and, you know, following that passion. So that's a, a challenging situation that's, you know, led to a good thing. Now we are, I must say, we're getting itchy feet, you know, for Yeah, for some, some more adventure. Australia is very safe, it's very clean, it's a very beautiful place to live, but we want to make sure that we keep that adventure part alive in us as much as possible
0: so how old are your kids now
1: um 11 and 14. So uh, how old
0: were they when when you left china
1: they were born here in australia
0: okay all right okay
1: yeah, yeah so they were just born here so we had, we were child we were we were roaming the planet doing what we wanted to do and yeah, it, was, it would have been a great opportunity to learn Mandarin and you know, do all those things that we're interested in. But then we ended up here, and, and Keela ended up studying Chinese medicine here in Melbourne, yeah, which was actually also good. And I did the things that I was doing and developed what I, what I was doing. But every time there's, to, to be honest, every single time there's a crisis situation, it, in, in Chinese characters, I'm not sure if you're aware, in Chinese characters, the word crisis has two characters. And one character is danger, and the other character is opportunity. Okay. So I always look at the opportunity part. What opportunity has this opened up for me now? Uh, if you focus on the danger and the negative stuff, even the COVID situation, you know, danger and opportunity is a crisis, but there's also opportunities within that. Yeah. So um, I'll look at that. So when we had COVID coming here, I thought, oh, I've been here before, been in this sort of situation before in SARS. I know SARS didn't quite you know, have the same impact eventually, but it was a very similar sort of situation, whereas a, a pandemic and this, the challenging thing in China was, a you couldn't speak the language but b they actually weren't disclosing any information yeah like, it's very secretive yeah it was going on so you know so we had to leave so when we came here you know now with this recent COVID outbreak it's like here we go again we don't know exactly what's going on you know behind closed doors in wuhan or whatever it is yeah but in many ways the opportunity that COVID gave me to be honest they coming almost we're at the present moment now here yeah
0: yeah so, yeah
1: so um the opportunity that COVID gave me was it actually opened up my seminars and workshops that I usually do in-house in, in companies. It opened it up to the global market. Yeah. So say for example, you know, seek.com who I work with here in Melbourne that open up their sessions to the, to the Asian countries or you know, many of the global companies that I work with that open up my sessions for global support because the world was struggling Yeah. and I think I mentioned in the book there that, that I supported over 75,000 people or more just in that 18-month period of COVID through my seminars, workshops and coaching and I thought, man, if I, can, if I can help that many people, I can help even more and that's where the idea of the book was born also. So most people only know me in-house, so they only know me in the company or you know, a referral from another company or a referral from somebody. They don't know me so much in the public space because I don't do that much public speaking, although I do a bit now. Um, so I wanted to expand my reach to people that couldn't find me outside of the corporate world, yeah. outside of the corporate four world walls. So that's what led me to get this book out there. So for me, if this book is, you know, reaches somebody, let's say they're traveling through Dubai airport and they pick up the book and they take it home and they read it and they get some tips out of it and that helps them and their family. That's fantastic. That's what it's for. If that can you know, have that ripple effect that someone in remote parts of the world, can can pick up the book. They don't need to come to my seminars or workshops or courses or programs. They can just pick up the book and grab it. So that it actually brings us to here, here and now, where we are now.
0: I think you've done this before. But, um, <laughs> uh, so let's let's explore the book. How long did it take to write the book? Was it was it already there, or did you nail it first go, or or how did you tell yeah. us about the the process?
1: It was fast. It was quicker than I thought it would be. So there was always a book sort of culminating in there somewhere. And as you know, because you've read the book, each chapter of the book is framed by one of my stories from my travels. So it could be, you know, the gorillas in Rwanda. It could be know, sort of situations around the world in the Himalayas that I learned a particular lesson. And then I impart that lesson that I learned and then I share that with the reader, you know, so it might be on self-awareness, it might be on self-regulation, so all of these lessons have always been inside of me, and I always thought that I wanted to do a book that would share more unique stories than just a book on models and templates and, you, mm, know, mm. you know, the typical sort of self-help book, to share a bit of me in there, to share a bit of my stories and my experience, and also other people's experience that I work with, you know, the, you know, the CEO of the Royal Flying Doctor Service, or, you know, the Manager or leader of a particular company, so the book was in there, you know, it yeah. It was coordinating, COVID gave it a bit of a kickstart. And then I actually, um, as you know, you know, publishing your own book, you have to get a publisher, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, or, or you publish for yourself. And then I actually um, pitched the idea to Wiley, and Wiley said yes immediately. And I was like, shocked, it was like, oh, oh my god, I have yeah. to write. Now and they gave me a fairly tight turnaround, so it was something like nine or ten weeks that I had to turn. Oh, go Yeah, with deadline to write, you know, fifty-five thousand words or something. But that was good in a way because that gave me the drive, the the motivation, the deadline to actually, you know, power mm. through it. And yeah, it was, you know, the writing a book's quite a liberating experience, also quite a lonely experience, quite an emotional experience. There's a whole lot of things in there, and there's only so much you can put in one particular book but it was a great experience for me I actually my wife and family were in switzerland at the time so they went away to switzerland i was supposed to go to switzerland and portugal with them but they went back to switzerland so i stayed home with my dog and and lit a fireplace and i i, I wrote for you know those nine or ten weeks and then you know, got it out there so well. yeah Yeah, really interesting journey along the way and and met people like yourself in in the Expert Authors Academy and other people writing books and meeting. So it's actually opened up my world in many ways, opened up my my world to meet many other people like yourself doing great things like some other people that you've interviewed. So I never thought the book would do that. I thought the book, you know, just to do other things, but it's, yeah, it's much more than that.
0: Yeah. Well, a question that I like to ask um, authors, is what did you learn about yourself in writing the book
1: yeah that's a really good question it is i think you're a different person at the end of the book than you are at the beginning of the book because yeah. what you're doing is you're capturing some of your life's work and it might be you know 3 decades of work or 2 decades of work and you you're trying to condense it into you know one little simple handout for somebody to actually pick up and read so I learned about myself, all of those lessons in there that I learned that I've actually got something to offer. I've mm. learned, I've actually you know, followed my my heart and followed my vision and followed my purpose along the way. And I I learned along the way and I, I am still learning um, you know, through practices and through things that I do. But I definitely feel that I was a different person going into writing the book than when I finished the book. Hard to pinpoint exactly what that is, Like it's hard to, maybe you become more um, articulate on what your message is, you know, the more you sort of hone it in and try to simplify it in a simple chapter. I I had to cull, um, so I ended up writing 70-plus thousand words and it was only supposed to be 55,000 words. So I had to cull a whole chapter, which killed me. Yeah. Oh, my God, I I didn't really want to cull that chapter. Ironically, the chapter was on letting go and acceptance. Yeah. so, so I learned to let go, uh, definitely, on that chapter. I'm sure I can use it elsewhere. But, um, yeah, I think I think what, it, what I've learned to answer that question succinctly is I really learned to articulate my message better and to be clear on who I am, where I'm going, and what I want to do.
0: I think you've answered that pretty well. The next question I normally ask to an author is you've already gone there a little bit um you said before we kind of went into this um the book part that uh, oh no, about the book you said that you want want people going through dubai airport to pick up your book um and and change their life in some way and have a ripple effect that passes on so that's mm. if, if i asked you the question what do you want people to get from reading your book is that is that the answer or do you want to articulate that in a in a different way
1: Yeah, it can be. That's, that's, that's exactly what I want. Like, that's the, I mean, I love it when I'm in a room and I'm impacting 50 people or 60 people or 200 people. I love that. I love that, that exchange, but I love it even more when an individual actually makes it, it makes a difference. The work that I do makes a difference. So whether it's the smallest thing, like I said before, someone might come up to me years later or months later and say, Hey, you know, that, that tip that you shared with me, or you, you shared, that actually saved my marriage. You know, that actually helped me, you know, to be more present with my kids. That helped me to enjoy life more. That little tip, I've had people come up to me on the beach walking, "Hey, Melo, yeah, you know, Melo, I recognise you from that thing." You know, shortly after you did that session with me, with us at our, at my company, I actually got cancer and was prog- you know, got a prognosis of cancer. And that tip helped me. So it can be the smallest thing of helping someone on an individual basis. Mm. It's that individual basis first. Yep. How that affects the people around them that's yep. ripple effect of that how that affects the community yeah even how that affects the world you know so that's sort of massive beautiful.
0: Effect. beautiful that's um again i take you back this interview in the courage to lead interview series is all about shining a light on leaders who empower others mm-hmm. uh, to create supportive or inclusive workplaces environments or communities so you're doing that in in one little step at a time. Last last question, because you've nailed it. You're you're you are very articulate. You're on message you've been on message all the way through. So mm. hats off to you, Melo. Um been a real privilege to interview you, actually. So um this is a leadership based podcast. So people listening to you today would be thinking, wow, you know, that's he's lived this life committed to mindfulness committed to meditation yeah. um and and through that everything else is kind of um you talked about i only get um i only want to do things where i'm continually learning uh continually uh, empowering other people so what would be maybe three things if i can if i can narrow you down to that that you would recommend a leader at any stage of their lives could do based on your approach to leadership
1: Yeah, it's the big three that I call these. So the big three that I say for any leader is the first step, and this goes with also the emotional intelligence model in in, Daniel Goleman talks about um, emotional intelligence. The very first step is self-awareness. So developing that self-awareness first as a leader, I've worked with leaders that, you know, they may think that they are great leaders and that their team loves them. And, you know, they, they're great at what they do. And then I start working with the team and the team said, Oh my God, he's, he's manic. He's all over the place. He's angry. I can't approach him. He's unapproachable. So the very first step is self-awareness. So developing that self-awareness piece first, and that will come with mindfulness practices, some uh, formal practices, getting to know yourself better, getting to know yourself on a deeper level. So the very first step for any leader is developing that self-awareness so they can actually get to know themselves, get to know what their pain points are, get to know what their emotional reactions are, their emotional responses are, get to know what pushes them over the edge, get to know their strengths, how they are great at what they do, and how, how they can support and empower others. So self-awareness, number one, I usually say with that, you can't change what you don't notice. Yeah, so you've got to notice it first. Mm. So as a leader, you have to notice that. The second piece is some tools and techniques to self-regulate. Now this is important for any leader or anybody in any situation, especially in high-pressure situations. So many leaders are under pressure. They are, you know, they've got um, pressure from above, pressure from below, pressure from all around the place, and sometimes that will, you know, push their buttons a bit, and they may lose it, or so they may, you know, become reactive or have outbursts. So, yeah. the, so the next piece is that self-regulation, the ability to self-regulate, whether that is a breathing practice, whether that is, you know, some sort of thing that they do for themselves that helps them self-regulate in the moment. So they can actually manage their own emotions, manage their own reactions, manage their own behaviors. So it's the second piece. Self awareness first and then the ability to self regulate. And the last one I'll harp on and on about because I think it's so important is diligent self care. And role modeling that as a leader, you know, looking after yourself on a daily basis. What I see with a lot of leaders that I work with, and especially when they're new in a role, they might have you know, got a, a new leadership role or they're in a new company and have this strong desire to, you know, to prove themselves as a, as a leader, to do the best they can to lead at their best. And then that usually ends up being letting go of their own self-care. Yeah. It's usually at a consequence for something else, and they keep adapting to that environment, and they keep changing that environment, and they start letting go of their self-care practices. So diligent self-care and role modelling that. And self-care is not only the basic fundamentals of you know exercise, nutrition, meditation, all these. It's also self-compassion, self-kindness, and all these other levels, these mental, spiritual, and emotional levels of self-care. That's the big three: self-awareness. Self-regulation and and self-care.
0: How's that? Well, you nailed it. And, and and that's I think you just nailed. Um, what the book made turned you into like um yeah you know, I think you were always there, but your your message is so clear. Um and it's so uh, it's really so simple and so personal. So it's been an absolute pleasure, Melo. Um uh, it really has. Um so if people want to buy your book or pe- if people want to hire your services as a one-on-one, or a company, or a, a seminar. Um, how do they get? How do they get
1: you? Pretty easy. But first of all, thank you. I really appreciate you actually, you know, this podcast. It's been great talking to you. So great to meet you face to face, and also your listeners there. So first of all, a big thank you from me. Um, how to find me? Probably the easiest point of call is my website, melocalaco.com. I know that's a mouthful to spell. M-E-L-O C A L A R C O dot com. Maybe you put that in the show notes. Um, oh, well,
0: yeah,
1: you can jump into our website and even download a sample chapter. So I can I can leave a link for that. You can download a sample chapter, which actually talks about self awareness and a situation where I was caught in a storm and I had to meditate for 12. Mm-hmm. I recall that, that story there.
0: That's a good read,
1: uh, yeah. it's a really good read. Yeah, so com. I'm always here to support whoever I can along the way, and um, yeah, I'm just reach out anytime email me through there, you'll find my contact details.
0: Thank you very much, sir. Um, I will uh, turn off the, um, that's, that does this for today. So thank you. thank you. Thank you. There's so much that Milo shared with us during this interview, but I'll just share these two concepts that I think really stuck out. In Chinese, there is a sign for crisis. And those two symbols, one represents danger, and the other represents opportunity. So Milo's message to all of us is always look for the opportunity in any crisis that we face. And these final three things that that he expands on a great deal more, but I'll just leave you with what the the concepts were. One, to achieve leadership, you need three main things. One, self-awareness. Two, self-regulation. And three, self-care. Thanks for listening. And until next time, see you then.